Hello, 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 and welcome back to another episode of Right Side Up Leadership Podcast. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to remind you of something. This has been a really hard season to live and lead. Now, that's probably not a surprise to you, but what may be a surprise to you is that there are people who can be in your corner to help you clarify. We have this simple equation at Stay Forth. We say as clarity goes up, overwhelm goes down. And what's important about that is to say that if you can clarify things about your life, your leadership, your team, your business, your church, your nonprofit, as you clarify things, you're feeling less overwhelmed. Overwhelm and anxiety can melt into next steps, execution, and ultimately becoming the leader God designed you to be, even in the midst of chaos. If you're feeling stuck, if you're feeling like you're in a fog, if you're feeling overwhelmed, then it is time for you to look at coaching. If you don't know what coaching is, it's different from friendship, it's different from counseling, it's different from mentorship. We deeply believe in those things, but a coach comes alongside of you to clarify your next step, to help you design those. You take those, and now we come along and live in accountability with you, live in relationship with you. And we are seeing incredible results from leaders all across the country, whether they're business leaders, church leaders, or nonprofit leaders. And occasionally we like to read an endorsement, a review on our Facebook page of how this is affecting leaders and transforming their lives. This is from Kimberly. She said, I started coaching with Stay Forth back in October. After each session, I feel super energized and poised to contribute more richly and intentionally in the midst of my areas of influence and impact. I especially love the tools provided that give me a better understanding of myself and others. Kimberly, we are so glad that you've grown along the way. It's an honor to walk alongside with you as a as Stay Forth coaches. I want to just remind you, please, please, please look at our Stay Forth coaching page. We bring tools alongside of you so that you can build a process long after coaching is gone where you are clarified and you are strategic and you are executing and you are doing the things you are uniquely designed to do. So head on over to stayforth.com, click on our coaching page to see some of our different options. Also click on our team page and our network page to find a coach that's a good fit for you. Great news, you get a free breakthrough session. We start with one of our coaches. We try to break through some area of your life and leadership where you've been stuck and you get to decide if you want to continue on coaching or not. Stayforth.com, head on over to the coaching page, the team page, and the network page to see what we do who we are, and how we can help you take your next right steps. And now, on to another awesome episode of the podcast. Sean Morgan, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Alan. Good to be here, man. Thanks for having me on the show. Hey, man. uh, Let's talk a little bit about 2020. I feel like we have kind of one more window. You're one of the last podcasts uh, this year that I get to say, let's talk about this crazy year of, of 2020. Before we get into kind of some trends, things you're hearing, how did 2020 change your plans? That's so interesting. It's a great question. It's changed something for everybody. For us, it changed less about our plans um, and more about our perspective. We were fortunate enough to already be shifting toward uh, focusing very singularly on building cohorts. And I didn't know when I started doing cohorts, uh, which which is called the Ascent Leader. And I didn't really know it, but the word cohort actually means six. And we had started way too big. And so 
going into 2020, we were already reducing the size of our cohorts and doing some things that made them very COVID friendly. And what we saw was there was a lot of online content and a hunger for online content in the spring, but a complete void of connection. And what that meant was going into summer, which in church development, church leadership world, summer's a hard time to get anybody's attention, right? Yep, it's like, so Christ, you know, the week leading up to, to Christmas or Easter or whatever is like, don't ask any pastors for favors those weeks. And summer's one of those seasons. But what we saw early on, and we're work, working with Steve Carter with Craft and Character and some other incredible leaders like Kenton Bishore, what we saw was people were coming to them saying, how do I get plugged in to a cohort? And we hadn't seen that before. Um, at least at that noticeable level. So for us, what we began doing was realizing that a lot of the things that we, we thought we may need to change are actually already configured. We need to tweak them and make them more COVID safe, uh, doing more and more things outdoors and, and just some things like that. But uh, for us, the perspective changed about how do we steward something that actually is building momentum through a global pandemic, which is not a situation we we, we necessarily thought we were going to be in or really planned or strategized to be in. Man, agree. I can resonate with so much of that. And, and we've been saying for a while at Stay Forward that people are exhausted or overwhelmed on information, but hungry for encounters and relationships. And so mm-hmm. I saw really the decoupling of content and connection happen and people saying, man, I want access to an amazing group of people where we can be honest together. We're not recording this. We're not going to tweet this afterwards. Uh, And so, you know, kind of death by content that was a lot of March, April, May. I mean, webinaring could have been your full-time job. I'm pretty sure. What do you do all day? I watch 60 hours a week of webinars. Like, oh my goodness, led to this loneliness of leaders saying, we need to talk face-to-face about what's happening. And so, man, love that you're, you're in that space. When you're sitting next to somebody on the plane and they say, hey, man, what do you do? What do you tell them? Yeah, that has changed over time because it's very hard to, you know, I used to say leadership coaching, but I felt less comfortable with that terminology. Um, I say I do leadership development for local church pastors. And I feel like that encompasses better because I don't come in, you know, there's different kinds of coaches. Um, and one of the things that you would say, if you obviously are paying attention to sports, coaches coach a team toward victory on the scoreboard. At the end of the day, they're developing players, they're doing all these things and practicing and training, but they're working toward a W on what the scoreboard. So a coach has to have a, a scoreboard. Uh, or a scorecard that they're coaching towards success. And I've always differentiated. You can Google terms and get a lot of different official definitions of things, but people have asked, well, what's the difference between like a coach and a consultant and a, a mentor? And I've always said, you know, consultants are people you hire that bring a skill set and like they're almost like a part of your staff, right? They're going to come lead a project or, or do something. They bring some experience and some perspective beyond a normal staff, um, but they're plugged in. A coach is somebody that helps develop you toward that scorecard metric of success that you agree. And a mentor is somebody who really just invests in you regardless of the success on the scoreboard, right? And um, I think there's a lot of misnomers about mentors. I think people 
I think we have to, and, and I'll be careful when I say this, I want to unpack it. So don't like nobody hit fast forward after I say this, but I think we need to lower the bar on what a mentor is. And what I mean by that is we do not lower the bar on the quality of a mentor, but I think there is an misnomer about mentors that you have to have this tight personal relationship. It has to extend in perpetuity. You have to meet weekly for coffee and talk about all these things. And I've always tried to tell people, no, you can have a mentor in a moment. You can have somebody invest singularly in you as a mentor for for just a few moments. Um, It doesn't have to be repeated, but if they're investing in you, regardless of the scorecard, but because they personally care about your development, that really defines the mentor. And most of the time they're older, but they don't have to be. They, they probably just have to be wiser about the topic that you're needing mentorship in. So I feel like as, as a uh, developer of others, that sometimes is an encourager, that sometimes is a mentor, that sometimes is a connector. Um, there could be a little bit, maybe still five or 10% consulting, you know, five or 10% coaching. So uh, I've gone to a more nebulous term because I've realized that some of the value that I bring and how I think and how I help leaders see a situation and how I convene leaders to to begin engaging and trusting peers with their story um, and how that then has a ripple effect throughout other areas of their life when, when they're really seen and known that that's more than a consultant. That's more than a coach. So long answer, but there you go. I agree 100%. I think many times for mentors are basically looking for somebody that's perfect in every area of life, including family, you know, business, organizational leadership. And we're really looking for this person, you know, high and mighty up in this mountain between 60 and 70. You know, I mean, there's like all these things. And I agree with you that uh, mentors are right around us, right? We just many times don't even don't even see them. I'm curious for you, Sean, that that making leaders better is that phrase that I just hear in that and we need so many more people like that. Can you remember when you first started doing that? When did that start? Yeah, I've thought about that. And I think it actually started growing up. It actually started... Um, where I noticed, you know, I wasn't a great athlete. I was a good athlete, but I worked really hard. And so I was on the team, you know, that sort of thing, but there were naturally better athletes in every sport that I played, you know? Um, but what I realized was that wherever I was, and in, in fact, um, one of my best friends was a great soccer player in high school, went on to play in college and some great teams. And, and actually I grew up in Colorado Springs in your neck of the woods. And I never played soccer. But what I, what I found is that uh, people often um, like gravitated toward me in some ways. And so then I, I don't think I was conscious about it at a, at a young age, but I realized like, Oh, like in the circles that I'm running in some of the, the, best athletes are like, am I doing, what am I saying to them or what am I giving them back that I don't realize? Like in how I think, how I act, how I'm wired, the words that I use. And over time, I would say this, I think some of the value that I bring leaders is, um, and again, I didn't know any of this, um, but, but I began to see it in high school through college and, and beyond was that when you're, when you're an influencer, you're kind of at the top of, of your little 
triangle or pyramid. And that could be a sports team in high school. It could be, you know, your division at a company or could be, you know, you're the CEO of something that you, you begin to realize that there are filters to what you hear. And Colin Powell actually says something along the lines of the further you are toward the top of any organization, the least likely you are to be the one that actually knows what's going on. So there, there are barriers to people because they don't want to look bad or they think you're too busy. You don't need to hear that story or whatever. And so I think people, influencers begin to realize that they don't get all the information they want. So being a truth teller is really important, but doing it with positivity and encouragement, right? Can you talk about bad news in a way that actually says, but if we can overcome this, what we'll learn through that process will really help us in the long term, right? That type of thinking. And I think I've always thought that way. And it's been a part of why people want me speaking into aspects of their life and aspects of their leadership. What's your favorite venue for convening leaders? Absolutely. It's, it's cohorts or even, even just one-on-one, but I had some experiences early on in ministry and I resisted going into ministry for a while. I didn't feel called into ministry. I didn't feel qualified once I began to get called into ministry. And it took me about a year to say yes, but about 15 years ago, I finally stepped into local church ministry here in Northern California. And I had some experiences in large gatherings that I think were, were things that um, there's a saying about future success and it's the greatest barrier to your future success is your past success. Meaning that when you're successful at something, you can tend to rest on your laurels or you can attend, uh, you can assume that you're good at something that maybe you were lucky at or fortunate with or, or whatever. And then you be, you begin to go down this road of like, oh, well, I'm not asking the same questions I used to be asking. I'm assuming I know. I'm assuming it's going to be successful. Yeah. And um, so anyway, I had this experience where um, I was around some very, very successful church leaders, and they were training and developing leaders from other churches. But the tone and nature of it um, was not very engaging. It was more uh, obviously we're successful because of our size and what they really meant by, by that was attendance and building and, and giving. And that's a whole nother conversation about what metrics are we, we measuring and, and how we begin to do ministry around those metrics. If those are the ones at the top of the list that everybody's paying attention to. So I had these experiences and then, um, there was like, and, and again, I'm not against this, but to me, it just felt odd that I get home a week later from, from an event that I was at and you would travel and you would dedicate time. And then somebody would offer to sell you the, the DVDs. It was DVDs back then. I'm dating myself, um, of the content for like just pennies on the dollar. And I just remember thinking, like, I didn't really have much other than content while I was there. And I paid a premium price. And now I'm being offered a a very low price for the exact same content. What's the difference between A and B? And what are the pros and cons? And then I had an opportunity. We could break down some other time. But I had an opportunity to begin convening leaders. And I remember wrestling with this thought. And this is, this is a decade after the story that I just told you. I remember wrestling with this thought of like, what content do I plan now, nine months ahead of convening a hundred plus leaders? 
that is going to be a bullseye for them. And I remember feeling at a gut level, uh, some tension about how could I possibly know what they're Pull walking out your with? crystal ball? Sean. Yeah. You right. know what they're like, <laughs> I'm just laughing when you say that. Cause I'm thinking, what if we would have said that in 2019 of like, Oh, exactly. What's really going to hit home in 2020. <laughs> totally. <laughs> uh, and we actually, it has to be 13 months ahead of time because you've got to announce it at that conference that yeah. next year we're going right. to talk next about year. Yeah. this pandemic that we're going to yeah. welcome Here's into who's the world. speaking and here's where we're going to be. Yeah. Exactly. So there's that pressure in, and I believe in, in strategic everything. You know, I actually was celebrating a, a fr- close friend's birthday last week and really talking to him about, well, how are you being a strategic parent? Like what, what, so I believe in that, but um, I, I just felt in this moment, like what if we could just get the right people in the room and engage them in conversation about like, what do you, what's, the, what's going on right now? And, and you always start with positive stuff like, Hey, you know, like, what are you celebrating right now? But really what you want to get to is the conversation of like, what are you feeling the weight of right now? Um, and that's where you start to hit the pay dirt when people begin to trust each other enough to tell the story of what's really going on. So what does and, that feel like in, in that moment? Take, take me to that moment, that moment when people are really sharing what's actually going on. What does that feel like in that room? I, I get to be an observer. So when I convene leaders in cohorts, and we have some great leaders in doing coaching and mentoring in, in the cohorts with us, it's not a, a one-man deal. But when I, and in particularly the first couple of times you meet with a group as they're beginning that bonding process, um, the weight's on my shoulders to like most people show up and they're going, okay, I'm trusting a friend who told me I should be here. I don't really know what this is about. Um, and so everybody's got their antennas up. Like, what is this going to be like? Um, is this going to add value? Am I going to want to leave early? <laughs> right. It's, it's the things that new people entering small groups at your church, you know, going like, I got to go to somebody's house and, or I got to sit around a circle. And I had a good buddy, an air force buddy of mine who was um, his wife used to drag him to church. And I said, you got to come to our small group. And he looked at me and he goes, Sean, he goes, um, I don't talk to my wife about those things. Why would I sit around with a bunch of families? I don't know. <laughs> like, it was just very, very frank. It was so funny. <laughs> yep. um, anyway, he, um, or, or so where I'm going with this is, so I, you have the weight of, as the facilitator of like all of those inhibitions and questions that everybody's coming in at. And can you have a togetherness? And so when, when somebody opens up with their story, it is like, putting a drop of food coloring in a bowl of water and it just takes a few seconds yep. and the whole bowl changes to the color of that one single drop. So it only takes the right environment and, and, you know, that's, it's early. So, you know, trusting people with the appropriate version of what a story is, but it only takes somebody. Um, a great example would be, I convened a group um, of leaders and they were all incredible leaders. Most of them would be people that, that you guys would, would know. And somebody asked me, said, okay, you know, all right, we're sitting down for dinner. Now we're here. You know, everybody's having a good time and smiling and meeting each other or, or re-engaging if they already knew each other. And someone says, Sean, why'd you bring us here? What is, what is this about? 
And I said, well, I was joking. And I said, well, I get to ask the questions here. And I said, mm-hmm. my question for you isn't why I brought you here. It's why you said yes. Yep. And it only took one person to go, here's what's going on behind the scenes in my church. And it's just like, I can't, because there's issues in the way that there are issues, I can't bring my team into it. Um, it's not, it's not the right thing for my team to be involved in. It's not honoring to the other people that are engaged in the messy situation. Um, so I said, yes, because I'm losing sleep every night about that. And I just, we just went around the table and it was four hours later before everybody had answered that question. I only asked one question yeah. in the first 60 seconds and it took four hours for a small so group of, of guys. So w- that's what it's like. It's like, this is a game changer. Uh, and it doesn't take, you know, it doesn't take a year. Sometimes it just takes a few moments and um, the right leaders beginning to tell the version of their story um, in a way that, that people get right. And it's just like, if you're in the, if you're in a cohort with the right group of people, you already feel seen, right. You already feel seen. So now when you trust people with your story, you can feel known. Mm. What are some phrases that seem to be playing on repeat among uh, church leaders this year? I think certainly it's the idea that you can't really plan for anything. Like you're just so reactionary. Mm-hmm. You're just so reactionary. Um, there's that. There's a question about financial viability. Like, well, so far we're doing okay. And there's just that apprehension about next week or next month or uh, those types of things. Um so there's some real apprehension about the financial model. Um, so really what I'm painting a picture of is just a lack of confidence to be able to make decisions. Yeah. Now I will tell you, I'm lucky in some ways that the leaders who I spend my time with in these cohort environments, um, they're, they're ahead their head and shoulders above their peers in a lot of ways, because they've already been in these environments. Many of them, um, what, one of the things I specialize is, is transition leadership. So new lead pastors of established churches. And here's one of the things that I think uh, I heard you say this as I was listening to a version of your podcast, something about burnout and how burnout usually isn't from working too many hours. Um, burnout in this, this work is, is burnout from, people issues or, or whatever. Um, I think there's another factor or maybe another factor to that. And that is um, having a level of peace with what you control and what you don't control. Yep. And then navigating in a way that you are more hands-on with the stuff you can control. And as a transition leader, you're stepping into somebody else's board, somebody else's, you know, staff, somebody else's culture, rhythms, expectations, all these things. So you've already been trained for a period of time on actually what you can control and not control. And you've made peace with the fact that there's a lot you can't control. That's not true in a lot of settings. And so I feel like a lot of those leaders adapted well to COVID because they could make peace. They could identify and make peace with things that they couldn't control. And then they could focus on what they could. And I, I, I'm seeing leaders struggle with that if they're not, um, they're not able to do that well. So Sean, is that about expectations? 
Um, I don't think it's about expectations in outcomes. Like I think you still have the same outcomes, but maybe it's about expectations in terms of like, well, what is that? What is leadership actually? Mm. Right. Everybody has a, everybody has guardrails on what they can and can't do. Everybody has a boss of some kind, um, um, systems and structure that limit, you know, the parent company for, for my leadership work is CDF capital. It's a great example. Um, they're an incredible bank that focuses on lending to churches. Um, but they also function underneath the rules and regulations of lending institutions, you know, for the federal government. So everything has to be thought of in terms of what is the federal government's guidelines on how a bank operates in those ways and does those things. And that's a very black and white thing because it's all written down and it ultimately boils down to finances, which are very black and white in most cases. But it's a great metaphor for everything in life is we all have that. We just have to make peace with it. And so I think from an expectation standpoint, maybe it is being able to, to say, you know, you can't expect to be a leader without limitations. In fact, I would say a leader without limitations is somebody who ends up going down the path of, of David, which is, you know, hey, I'm going to stay home from war because I can make that decision and no one was going to challenge me. Yeah. And oh, by the way, at three in the afternoon, when I know there's going to be thousands of women on their rooftops bathing in the, the warm water, I'm going to choose to go hang out on my rooftop. Um, that's what a leader without limits gets you. And so it can be frustrating, but making peace with it. Mm-hmm. What do you think has fundamentally changed about the Western church in 2020? I don't think it, it's changed yet. I think it's beginning to change. And I think it's good is I, I think God is blessing us in, and we have to be willing to be a contrarian thinker if we want to find blessing in things that are frustrating, uh-huh. um, like a global pandemic and um, all the limitations that come with it. But I think one of the blessings will be, and there are certainly some hardships, and I do, I do not want to to undermine um, that. Uh, there's a lot of leaders experiencing hardships, but I think that there's an absolute blessing in, um, like right now, where's the church thriving globally? And it's the same story it's been for hundreds of years and thousands of years. The church is thriving where it's most persecuted. Yeah. Um, and it goes back to that thinking of, of the greatest threat to our future success is our past success, because we can tend to think that something's figured out. It works this way. Just stick to it. And when you're in crises or when you're, when you're you know, developing a house church under a government that's persecuting Christianity, you have to innovate. You have to think, okay, what's the real purpose of what we need to do and how do we do it where we don't get arrested today? whether you're in Iran or China or many other places. And so I think the greatest blessing coming out of COVID is it is forcing millions of decision-maker leaders in local churches to re-examine what they assumed was true, a rhythm that they've been caught in, you know, that feels probably like complacency that was ultimately potentially leading to the demise of their church. COVID will have interrupted that and forced those leaders to re-examine things, re-justify things. Um, and I think we will see, I have no idea what ways the church will truly innovate, but I think COVID will, it was already happening, 
but yep. COVID will have, have been the catalyst and the fast forward to the future church. Yeah. And we will see young leaders taking risks in ways that old guys like me probably never thought about. Uh, agreed. The great accelerant, right? The great reveal yeah. that, that 2020 right. has been. Um, what are a couple more things that you're excited about as you look at kind of what's been dislodged, unearthed, revealed? Um, we're heading somewhere. Everybody wants to look back at 2020 and that's fair. We need to, to name and make progress or to, to make some sense before we make some progress. But as we think about the future of the church, what excites you heading out of 2020? I think there's, I think it's going to force us to, in some ways, count our blessings. Um, what are the things that we weren't thankful for that we should have been, right? And I think we could probably all make personal lists and professional lists um, of things that we took for granted, and maybe even things right now. Um, I would dare say, you know, Paul wrote most of the New Testament while in prison. And what are the ways that he was blessed by being in prison? Um, and so we're sort of in the prison of a pandemic, and it's got its grip on life and society and culture. And so I absolutely think that that would be, for me, just... Uh, just a change in appreciation and perspective. I, I would say it, you'd probably be hard pressed to find somebody right now who doesn't appreciate a face-to-face encounter more today than they did December a year ago. Yes. Right. Yeah. So I think that there's going to be some of that, that change in perspective. Um, I think it's going, you know, I think there'll be bad things about it too. I think, you know, a church that um, was, was taking risks, but not financially stable um, and doing some really good ministry might, might be folding where a church that, you know, wasn't doing much, but had a lot of resources in the bank or things like that might, might perpetuate. So there's, there's some things right there where I would say, wow, I, I hope there would be some, some equalizing where ministries begin to look for um, move out of if I'm in a local church in the same town as that church, then we're kind of competitors. Right. Um, and a spirit of cooperation. Um, we can do things this way and you can't, and you can do things in that way. And we can't, how do we cooperate? So more of a gospel focused, I think that's probably something that's very true of a persecuted church too, is I doubt there's anybody in a house church that's mad that there's another house church meeting three blocks away right. or, or, or that they added a family or two to their house church and you didn't this week. Um, but there was definitely that sense. And, and I even know a church in, in the, this neck of the woods that merged with another large church. And the senior pastor got up on stage and said, you know, um, who do you feel like the competition is? And they said the other mega church in town was kind of like the feedback they got from that church instead of, you know, no, this is a spiritual battle. You know, like the competitions is, is Satan undermining our work and um, inhibiting our ability to spread the gospel. So I think some of those refocused. Uh, I think churches will move away from, I mean, we have to move away. It's a total gift. We have to move away from the conversation about attendance. Yeah. That I am not saying paying attention to attendance is bad, but that being a measure of success, like, oh, the greatest church in your town is the person with the, the biggest auditorium and the most people in the room on a Sunday morning on average. That's, there's just, there's just no way to compare church to church, neighborhood to neighborhood, culture to culture, 
Um, and so I think we will see far less of like a few dominant pastors seen as like the most influential pastors. And I think that same influence will still be out there, but it will be spread out instead of over just a few dozen it will be several hundred incredible influencers. And the narrative of your success can be innovative things you're doing and, and ways God is, is allowing fruit to be born out of that ministry without having the biggest auditorium or the largest number of attendees. Mm-hmm. I think that will be huge. And we might find that some of those things do result in uh, more and more growth numerically um, and those types of things. And we can celebrate those, but I, to me, that's a secondary celebration. Yeah. Anything else that, you know, besides sort of our success, quote unquote, um, metrics, anything else that you would like to see changed after this? Well, I certainly think the church, and if you know, Bobby Grunewald at Life Church, uh, you know, that this is really his, his personal mission statement is to see the church be the greatest innovator on the planet. Our mission is the most important. So therefore we ought to be. And, and I think the church has to invest way more in moving forward in innovation. And that will involve uh, taking risks that will involve technology. You know, a lot of churches right now, I think, so, Oh, well, we're online. We're online. Every church is online. Every church has now figured out a way to upload a video to YouTube. That doesn't mean your church is online and it doesn't mean you're innovating. And so the, the church, what I'm excited for is the church to um, like, I'll, I'll give you another example. I know of a fairly large church that was moving toward making um, their multi-site church, moving toward making a 10 plus million dollar investment in their next campus. And it is, is selling that all off and moving all of their resources into things that they believe are more scalable and will bear bear more fruit. And the first thing they're doing is really figuring out what does pastoring people and engaging people online actually mean? Getting services online is one little tiny necessary but insufficient step, but what does it actually mean to pastor and engage people? Who's our target audience? What are our expectations of them? How are we meeting them there? How do we take advantage of the fact that people are more honest and chat rooms on their very first Sunday than they are in the lobby of your church on their very first Sunday. And they're beginning to wrestle with that. And so I absolutely think that figuring out, you know, you, you don't need, part of the problem with digital church is that it's always been a chore for somebody who knew how to do the task, right? So if you know how to capture these files and upload them and get them to our website, then that's your job is to do that. We're going to ask you to do that for us. That's different than figuring out a way to pastor people digitally. And so I really think integrating all of those things of digital savvy talents in in the digital savvy space, but with the design of of a pastor. Mm. Yeah, hence Bobby Grunewald and what they've been able to unleash in the world, the church beyond. I absolutely love it. Man, we could talk for so long. I want to talk about transition for a moment. Yeah. I'm coaching a lot of leaders who are beginning to, I'm seeing even as early as maybe early 40s, peak at legacy. Who's going to, who am I going to leave behind me in my wake? Are you starting to see pastors looking at transition earlier? Yes, but not. uh, from a who. Um, It's more from 
beginning to understand the personal journey. I guess it is a who, but it's them. It's not who's next. It's them. Second mountain type stuff. Yeah. But even more than that, even earlier than that is realizing how attached they are to the position. So it's separating who they are. This is the outgoing leader you know, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, identity-wise from the role that they are in. And so it's not who's next, identifying that person. There's a lot of different ways to approach that, um, trying to raise them up from within and get the culture and hiring out and, and just all those types of things. I think what I'm, what I'm seeing and encouraging in pastors is to begin the journey and it really encompasses um, th- their entire family but certainly you know if it's a, if it's a man his wife if it's a female her husband dealing with the identity issues because otherwise the succession transition process will be more about them leaving than preparing the soil and transitions you have to think about transitions one, the real work happens after the baton pass. Let's just be clear about that. Yep. Like I've been working in transitions for a decade. The real work happens after everybody else kind of thinks, phew, glad that's over with. The truth is, is that all the heavy lifting is pretty much done from that point on. So it's like a tree transplant. And you don't, if you if you spent a lot of money to, to import a tree into your yard, maybe it's a fruit tree or just whatever, a rare tree. And so you're paying an arborist to come do this. They don't just come show up one day and, and pull out a, a spade and dig a hole and plop a tree in the ground and leave. Um, you think and you plan ahead of time about, well, where are we going to put it? Is it going to get the right sunlight in that? Or is it going to be too much shade from the tree nearby? Is the soil here appropriate? How do we, how do we bring in other nutrients into the soil here? What about irrigation? Like, do we need to bring in irrigation systems? And, and you, you often see near tree, tree transplants is a hole where they've dug and put in a pipe and they fill it with water. So the water gets down 10, 12 feet in the soil and encourages the roots to go downward instead of out superficially. And that is a great metaphor for transitions of all the things that the outgoing leader needs to be able to do to prepare the soil for that transplant. And they won't be able to affect much after they make the baton pass, but they can prepare the soil ahead of time. And to do that, you have to truly, it has to be about the mission and not you. So to do that years beforehand, you have to begin separating who you are and your identity from your role from the church. And that just takes a lot of work. So yeah, we've seen leaders planning and preparing in that way. And that's a huge encouragement to me that people are beginning to realize just what a journey it is. Agreed, man, for another day, let's do a whole episode on transitions, huge topic. Uh, and I'm to. sure so much to dig into about that. You have a ton of conversations. I mean, you're curating conversations all the time. I'm sure coffee, campfires, leaders in living room podcast. What's a conversation this year that you absolutely loved? I think the, com- the, the one of my favorite conversations this year, if not the favorite one was we got together with Derwin Gray, Darius Daniels, Carrie Newhoff, Steve Carter, Steve Carter, Hosanna Wong, and myself. And we had what's called the backstage pass, where we basically invited a live audience to a live and, and a zoomed in um, speaker panel. And we basically said, what types of conversations would you have in a green room that we want to invite the rest of the world into? And it, this was a God thing, but 
Um, we had uh, Hosanna has an Asian background. Um, Darius and Derwin are both black. And then we had Carrie, um, Steve and I, and three white guys. And we did not, des- we did not know what the first week of June was going to look like in the United States. This was planned way back in like February, March timeframe. Wow. But the conversation we were able to have about leadership amongst, uh, amidst the largest tension, the greatest tension, uh, racial tension beginning to surface, it was such a gift. And what I appreciated was how open and honest everybody was. We had a digital audience that was dialing in and we were able to engage with them and take questions. And so we didn't design the panel to talk about race, but we said, we're gonna open this up and listen to what the audience wants to ask us. And of course we, we dove down the, the race topic and um, it was just such a gift. I, I respect those leaders so much, but they all think so incredibly deep before they speak in, and that's not, not just in the moment because it's they're they're wrestling with things in their private life. They're wrestling with things during their quiet time that they can begin to shape and mold and put words to. And it's such a gift then to be invited into that. And they were just open and honest. And so I helped facilitate it, but it would have been great just to sit in the audience. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, last question, man. Uh, we're going to zoom out. We're going to zoom out 10 years uh, the year is the end of 2030, and we're 10 years removed from you know the, the madness and crises of 2020. What do you hope people say about how you lived and led through this year, Sean? I hope that you know Moses was said in in the Bible that he he said in in numbers like I'm the most humble person on the planet, um, and so I hope. And if you really look at that and understand why it's fair for him to have that in there and say that about himself. I would hope that people would look back and, and go, um, wow, you were a conduit, um, humbly serving others first. You were others centric and, uh, that I wasn't looking to build a name, a voice or a platform, but I was looking to take all the chips that I got on the table and invest them in the people that are around me. I believe they'll say that, Sean. Appreciate you, all the work you do. Keep up the good work, man. Thanks, Alan. It's good to be here.